0: Welcome to the first episode in 2021 of The Wharton Current. I'm your host, Tom Zobmeyer, and together with Hamza Zafar, I had the great pleasure to talk to former Goldman Sachs partner and CEO of The Nature Conservancy, Mark Tursek. We'll discuss his new newsletter, The Instigator, his work advising private sector leaders on ambitious environmental strategies that make business sense, and how having a climate focus maximizes shareholder value. Let's jump right in. Hope you enjoy Mark, thank you for joining the Wharton Currents first episode in 2021. It's great to have you on. You were a partner at Goldman Sachs, then you were a CEO of Nature Conservancy, and have most recently started publishing a newsletter called The Instigator. Can you tell us a little bit about the newsletter itself and then over your career, how you got to that point?
1: Yeah, today um, I try to draw on my two prior big professional experiences. 24 years at Goldman Sachs, where I was a partner and ran some big businesses. And I also initiated the firm's environmental uh, effort, which we can talk about. And then 11 years running the Nature Conservancy as CEO. And the Nature Conservancy is the world's biggest environmental nonprofit. So I've done two big things professionally. Today, I position myself as an advisor to private sector leaders on very ambitious environmental strategies that also make business sense. And um, I draw on my prior experiences to do that. Um, My newsletter, The Instigator, is to um, kind of spread the word on those very strategies. So it comes out every other Sunday. I hope your listeners will subscribe. It's free, it's on Substack. But I think about how the different players in the private sector, well, beyond the private sector. So for the private sector to do everything I think it can, it needs to draw on, members of the environmental community too. So NGOs matter, philanthropists matter, consumers and employees matter. So I try to emphasize the really important opportunities in the newsletter in a way that's clear and easy to understand. Um, and I emphasize those strategies that I think can skip the needle. My background is, yeah, Goldman Sachs, 24 years, most of those years, so 20, at least 22 of them, were as a mainstream investment banker. You know, Wall Street's changed a lot. Uh, in the interim, but your your listeners will understand. I, start, I was a deal guy uh, for the first half of my career. The second half of my career, I ran big businesses, the new issue equity business, corporate finance, uh, consumer healthcare, real estate, stuff like that. Late in my career, I was thinking, okay, this has been great, but now um, I'd like to become an environmentalist. I got into the environmental stuff late as a parent, really. My wife and I were city people. We really didn't know the natural world well, but as parents, We made an effort to introduce our kids to nature, and we fell in love with nature. I think that's important because I think there's an inner environmentalist in everyone. So we just have to help unlock that. So anyway, I got interested in nature. I became aware of environmental problems. And then I was one of those business people who thought business can be a force for good. I still think that. So those interests came together. Hank Paulson intervened and appointed me the first head of Goldman's environmental efforts. So back in 2005. So back then, that was kind of novel even radical. And my idea was pursue environmental strategies that make business sense. So it went pretty well at Goldman. Then I went and did that for 11 years at TNC. That was really exciting. There are a lot of great environmental NGOs. Uh, I admire all of them. TNC is one of them. Uh, The team was superb. So I'm really proud of what we accomplished while I was at TNC. But of course, the team deserves most of the credit. I was just one more guy on the team. Anyway, I was the CEO, after being CEO for more than 10 years, I thought, gosh, it's time for a new CEO. So I moved on. Today, uh, this focus on the private sector, I'll just comment on that. Why? Well, you guys all know we have enormous environmental challenges. We can start with climate, but really everywhere we look, we have huge challenges. Government has kind of been on its heels recently. We need to improve that and address it, but I don't think things are going to get a lot better quickly. They'll get better, but not better enough. The NGO community is really important, but I learned firsthand, there's constraints to what NGOs can do. They can't be as fast or as nimble as the private sector. They can't raise capital like that. So I really think we have no choice. We must motivate the private sector to step up and do more. I think the good news is it makes business sense to do so. And private sector leaders increasingly realize that. So I think we can be optimistic about the period ahead, but it won't just happen. So that's what I'm trying to do.
0: You touched on a lot of interesting th- uh, points there, uh, and we'll get to those. Maybe sticking to the instigator first, I'm a big fan of, of the newsletter. Uh, recommend all our listeners to check it out. The most recent one was titled, What Will You Do to Accelerate Environmental Progress in 21? You Need to Make a Game Plan to Make a Real Difference. Do you have a game plan for this year?
1: Yeah, I have one. Uh, I'm glad you asked about that blog, that, that issue of the newsletter. Usually I'm writing about kind of fancy corporate strategies, that kind of thing. But I also like to step back from time to time and offer advice to individuals on how they can make a difference. Uh, while I was at TNC, you know, I was always giving speeches and um, I would do my best. And the audience was generally, I think, you know, kind of interested in the environmental topics. But always in the question and answer period, people would ask about my own uh, journey. How did I get from where I was to being an environmentalist? And what I concluded is there are a lot of people out there who want to make a bigger difference than they're making, but they don't know exactly how to do it. So that's why I wrote that, news, news, that newsletter issue. Um, if you're one of those people who wants personally to make a bigger difference, uh, it, can't, it doesn't just happen. You've got to work at that and, and create a game plan. And so then in the newsletter, I spell out what mine is. I said, I'll go first. So what am I doing? Um, uh, Well, by way of background, I say when I left TNC, I wasn't sure what the best way would be to continue to be environmental. So don't be intimidated if you're not sure. It's not obvious, I don't think. So I talked to a lot of people and I thought hard about where we were in the world in terms of how we address environmental challenges. And that's how I concluded with the input of smart people who I admire. I concluded a smart thing for me would be to draw on those two experiences, Goldman and TNC, and try to be um, a champion or catalyst for more action. And and so that's what I'm doing. I, I, um, I have a portfolio of advisory projects right now where I'm urging CEOs or PE fund leaders to be much bolder than they're otherwise prepared to be. And I'm emphasizing that it makes business sense to do so. And I'm trying to show them how to do it. And sometimes showing them how to do it includes engaging with the NGO sector. I think it's an underutilized strategy. I think the private sector should work more with the environmental community. And then I also write about it in the Instigator and even that's interesting, some people say to me, I wrote blogs at TNC too, and my colleagues would say, why do you spend so much time writing those things? It's not a good use of your time. I don't agree. I think it's a really good use of your time if you're trying to do something like this, because it's easy to sort of you know, BS about stuff like we are right now. But if you try to write it down in a careful way, you see, oh, this is, this is more complex than you think. And, and, and writing forces you to refine your thinking. So that's useful for me. You know, I wanna be, I wanna be smart. And then I put it out there and I get a lot of feedback. It's easy to get feedback as an environmentalist. There are a lot of critics. That's a good thing. So I don't want to spin my wheels. I don't want to do something that I think is a good idea and gets nowhere. So if people out there think I'm wasting my time or pursuing strategies that don't work, you know, maybe it'll hurt my my feelings a little bit if they say so, but I don't care. I want to have impact. So um, those are all good things, I think, for your listeners to keep in mind. So wherever you are in your life, if you're young, you can't afford to do this probably full-time like me, or maybe you can, you can pursue a career doing this. But if you pursue a career that is the right one for you, but doesn't line up with everything you want to do in, the, in, the, in terms of your environmental commitments, then you just need to step back and think about, okay, what can I do on a part-time basis? Or maybe today you would like your full time job to be one addressing environmental challenges, but it's not. You can't always have exactly the job you want at any one point in time. Fine. So then how might you transition from where you are to where you want to go? So you have to think very clearly about those kinds of challenges or opportunities. And then in the the, um, newsletter, I emphasize, you need to get feedback too. So in the newsletter, I say, look, think of me as your coach you should all try to get coaches. I still do this. I mean, I've been at this for a long time, so I should kind of be an expert, but I know that I need help. I need coaching. I need feedback. So those would be some of the, those are some of the reasons I wrote that last issue of the newsletter.
0: Yeah, that's great. Maybe given that this is a Wharton podcast, a lot of our listeners are Wharton students or alumni. Um, You went to HBS, but you also have an MBA. Many of us, including myself, are going through recruiting for summer internships or full-time jobs right now, thinking about your conversations with PE funds or businesses and what they can do better. What can we as MBA students do, or what should we be thinking about when we're picking companies we want to work for and what they can yeah, do?
1: It's a great question, and I think that timing has never been better. It's it's interesting. The world is kind of turned upside down, and so it's you know if you think of typical corporate structures, uh, the folks at the lower level of the pyramid have much more voice and agency than ever before. And so I'm talking to CEOs all the time. Why are they interested in my ideas? Because they're hearing from their colleagues, uh, including you know younger ones, newer ones, that they really need to do something. They want their organizations to be ones that appeal to the so-called best and the brightest. It's competitive recruiting. Uh, They know young people especially, but really all people now want to work for organizations whose values align with their own. So young people, really all employees, should, I think, be more assertive about expressing themselves. Of course, you want to do it politely. You want to be savvy. You don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be a nut. You want to you want to do it in a thoughtful way in that I think. Yeah. In that last issue of the newsletter I use as an example, as I was writing the newsletter, the private equity firm TPG announced it had a new, it was launching a new climate fund. And my friend and former boss, Hank Paulson would be the head of it. And they made the announcement with Fanfare and indeed it's a good announcement. But I said, just as an example for people like uh, MBAs or recent MBAs, imagine you're a young person who works at TPG, you're like on the deal team or something and you know, you're ambitious about your career, and you also care about environmental outcomes, uh, but you don't work on that climate fund. So what should you do? What's your strategy to succeed? So the way I wrote it in the newsletter, I said, are you gonna outwork everybody else at TPG? And I said, good luck, because you know, as far as I can tell, everybody already works 24 seven. Are you gonna have new ideas about how to do private equity deals I mean if you do great but it won't be that easy because again very competitive marketplace but you care about environmental concerns so i said maybe what you should do is by yourself or or with a group of like-minded peers arrange to see some of the senior people at tpg and say it's great that we have this new climate fund it's great that we have the rise funds but we would like to talk about and and volunteer to work on TPG's overall environmental commitments? What are we doing about all the portfolio companies that we own and are buying? Um, Can we on some basis commit to and guide them to uh, a position where they'll be um, aligned with net zero goals? I think that kind of initiative can be really well received right now. So that's just one small example. So sorry for a long answer. If you're an MBA and you care about environmental stuff, you can try to get a job that allows you on a full-time basis to work on environmental stuff. Great. There are many such jobs right now. But if you don't have that kind of job, you can instead think about, and this is the kind of thing I always write about in The Instigator and what I'm doing day to day on a full-time basis. How can my company, my employer, make a bigger environmental uh, move, but in a way that makes business sense? And you'll be surprised, in my view, that how receptive senior management will be. They know, I think most of them know they should be doing more. They're a little unsure about what to do. They want it to be aligned with their employees, especially the newer, younger ones. And I think it's a way to distinguish yourself. And and even even if it's neutral for your career, I can't imagine it will hurt your career. You'll learn a lot because the world, obviously the world has to address these challenges. So anything you can do to be on the cutting edge and becoming more expert in that, will um, just position you well. It's just like you guys doing this podcast. It's a really smart thing to do. Um, I don't know, we haven't talked about why you do it, but if week after week you're having conversations like this, it's gonna make you smarter, and more sensitive to these kinds of opportunities. And we we have no choice. The world has to pivot fast and be smarter about addressing all that. And that would be my advice uh, to everybody. Don't be shy, go for it.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think our podcast, I mean, we it's one, educational, and two, advocacy to look at renewables, climate tech, get people interested. Uh, there's going to be a lot of action. It's going to be a very dynamic sector over the next decades, and it's a great time to be interested in, in energy and climate tech and environmentalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, and this is actually going to be my next question, you mentioned a lot of managers maybe know that they should be doing more, but they don't know how. Yes. Why? Why do you think they they think or know they should be doing more? Is it shareholder pressure, in your op- opinion? Is it just positive externalities? We should be doing more for for the environment. You wrote in in 2019 in Forbes that environmental business strategies aren't just good for the environment; they're good for business results too. How do you quantify that, and what do you mean?
1: It's a really great question. So, first, why do CEOs? Think they should be doing more. And you mentioned these different constituents. Yes, they're hearing from all of them. They're hearing from investors saying, We want to know more about climate risks or climate opportunities or broad ESG risks and opportunities. They're hearing it really from all investors, but obviously they're hearing it especially from ESG themed investors. And there are more and more dollars in such funds. So investors are doing a nice job. They're hearing it from their customers, they're hearing it from their employees they're hearing it from their children at home. Uh, so they're they're under some pressure. it's not just hearing it they're under pressure to do more. second, you know business people are are, are smart about thinking about the future and managing risk. that's kind of what business people have to do. and so as they look ahead and see all these challenges, uh again they they know they better they better prepare for risks and they better um Take advantage of opportunities. They also know that regulatory regimes will be changing. Um, so I I think they get it. Why are they unsure what to do? Because we've never we've never been here before. I really think this is um, this is kind of a first. Let's just use climate as our um, as our uh, one issue to focus on, but we could pick many others. Um, if you, Larry thinks. Annual letter to CEOs came out today. Now I'm a Larry Fink fan. Um, I recruited him to the TNC board when I was there. I really admire him, but I think this is his best letter. Um, it's just it, and it's very focused. CEOs need to prepare for net a net zero economy. A net zero economy is one where uh, there any emissions that still occur are removed from the atmosphere, and all companies in a net zero economy will have to be there. And he says very explicitly, companies who are on that trajectory will be rewarded with higher valuations and companies that are not on that trajectory will suffer. I mean, that's a pretty clear warning to management teams by the world's largest shareholder. Um, It's a great letter. It's all based on very good science. And if you're a business person, I don't see how you can read it and dismiss it. Now, there's a lot to work out though, um immediately on how we get from where we are to there. Um, there's no mistaking that that. One thing I say to people, it's, it's not my idea. I forget where I first picked this up, but it's a good rule of thumb is okay, because 2050, that's when people talk about reaching net zero. It's so far away from now that you know the current CEOs won't be CEOs anymore. So it's one of those things where it's easy to make big claims and maybe not do much. So you need to break it down and say, okay, if, if net zero is the 2050 goal, then we should get somewhere like half that far by 2030. That's a little bit arbitrary, but I think that's useful. And so now if you're a CEO and you have a goal to get halfway there by 2030, then I would say, okay, now what you need are milestones year by year so that we can all measure progress. So it's not just, you know, talk. And and so then what does that mean? Again, we're only talking about climate. We could talk about other issues. Then I would say, okay, now CEO, you need to, be really aggressive about figuring out how you're going to reduce your direct emissions in the fastest way. And of course, usually there are, there are emission reductions that can be achieved now that are easier and lower cost. And then as you go further along, they're more difficult and more expensive to achieve. So how do you think about that? Where do you continue to reduce emissions and where do you stop because it's too expensive? There's no clear Framework about that right now. It's your, you know, people like you got to start thinking hard about that. When should you use um, so-called offsets? That's what this issue of the newsletter coming out Sunday will be about. Again, there's no clear, there's no clear agreement yet. So figure out what you think is best and disclose everything you can about it. Um, and so that's where we are. Um, it's complicated, it's difficult. I think the companies that are best, I say this in the next issue of my newsletter, I just wrote it this morning, that's why it's on my mind. The smartest companies and the ones I admire most are the ones who are clearly laying out their plans, even when they don't have all of the answers. How could they have all the answers? And even when they know they'll be criticized, fine, don't take the criticism personally. Think of that as free advice on how you can improve. Um, that's the spirit on how we think we should go forward. Now, if young people, MBAs or recent MBAs, hear all of that, just think about the enormous number of really interesting career opportunities that are there. A cool thing about all of this, I think, is one problem for ambitious MBA types is if you go to a, a traditional business, the people who are more experienced are gonna say, hey, I have more experience than you, and it's true, they've seen more. Therefore, you know, I should tell you what to do. It's very frustrating but in this world that we're just talking about right now, we've never done this before. And so actually the more experienced people, not only don't they know more, I think they're also disadvantaged because they're a little bit biased or burdened with the old way of doing things. So I think it creates these wide open opportunities for new people and we need you younger people with fresh, bold ideas to go
2: for it. So that's my advice, please go for it. A point that you made that I find very, very interesting related to Larry Fink's letter saying that the companies that are on the right track are going to be rewarded with higher valuations. And naturally, this is a topic that gets a ton of airtime at Wharton because we are a finance-focused school. What's your response to someone that says that if I'm a fiduciary, if I'm on the investment committee at the Penn Endowment or at a corporate or public pension, my primary responsibility is to deliver return and the investment objective that's set out? For the investment program, whether that's to pay scholarships, to pay a pension, and it's not necessarily to look at climate-focused strategies. Right. And think, What's now? I'm not saying I agree with that argument, but I think it's an argument that we hear.
1: No, it's okay. It's a good. It's a good question. Look, your question is: um, What about shareholders or management teams who say, "My op- my responsibility is to maximize shareholder value. Period. Full stop. Yes. Therefore." Why should I listen to you go on and on about things like climate? And I say because paying close attention to climate or other environmental issues or ESG issues—that's the bet. That's an imperative now if you want to maximize shareholder value. Now, we so I'm only advocating for business strategies that make business sense that are consistent with maximizing shareholder value. Now we don't want to be too glib, but in a big picture way, I would say the following. Most of the environmental strategies we're talking about will likely uh, improve business results in a measurable way in the following ways. One, they'll likely improve your top line. How? Because, come on, as we think about how all the challenges the world has to address in connection with climate or these other issues, there will be just new businesses to be in. The, the, The hardest thing for a business is to find new ways to grow the top line. It's likely in most cases, perhaps not every case, so this takes work. It's likely in most cases, pursuing environmental initiatives will grow your top line more than it otherwise would. Next, costs. It's also likely, uh, if you think about the risks and costs and problems that go with uh, delaying environmental issues that if you don't do it, your costs will rise. So of course, (laughs) You don't even need to be an MBA to know that if you can increase your revenue and lower your costs, you're on your way to more shareholder value, but we can continue. Think about all of the companies that have recently probably made long-term expensive investments in plant and equipment that will, be, will likely be stranded or somewhat stranded assets. Thinking harder and having a team that's smarter about future scenarios for environmental challenges and opportunities will probably make you a better long-term investor. That's shareholder uh, aligned. Let's think about risks. Um, this is kind of easy, I think. Imagine if you're, um, if you're not being as cognizant today as you should of, 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 of negative outcomes from business activities you're engaged in. You know, For example, you're doing something that creates local uh, environmental issues, air pollution that's uh, uh, focused on a particular community, and now environmental justice advocates are going to come after you, and there's going to be litigation, and there's going to be reputation damage, and you're going to have to do things to remedy uh, what you could have gotten right in the first place. So you can lower risks, I believe. Or you can flip it around, and you can just streamline things and move more quickly. If you're planning big capital spending plans and you take the time to work with environmental advisors and you win local community support, there will likely be less risk for litigation or protests or things that slow you down or hurt your reputation. So those are the kinds of categories of sources of shareholder value from addressing this. But I want to emphasize it's not quite that easy business leaders need to think hard then about okay what makes sense for our company like all these strategies don't work for every company life's never that easy and so you need smart people on your team who are really going to dig in and say okay here are the environmental opportunities or the environmental risk reductions that we should pursue that make sense for our business um but those are the kinds of things i had in mind i actually don't think business should do too much voluntarily that doesn't make business sense there will be needs for that too, but but we have to look for regulators to require such behaviors. It's kind of hard to ask a business to not do business oriented things. Like um, an example would be away from the environment, let's change the subject to something like soda. There's a lot of scientific evidence that you know, says soda is very harmful to human health. So should the big soda companies stop selling soda? Well, no, they'd be kind of crazy for them to do that. They're, they're executives that sell soda. You see them doing a lot. They reduce portion size. They try to also offer healthier alternatives. They modify their advertising so that they don't take advantage of younger consumers. But if we want further restrictions on the ability for them to sell soda then governments have to step up and do that as regulators. So business leaders have huge opportunities to be better environmental citizens or better ESG citizens in ways that make business sense. I think they should take full advantage of those
2: opportunities and those opportunities are enormous. Mm-hmm. That's great Mark. Thanks a lot for that insight. And I and I I very much tend to agree with the points that you're making. I think the argument that I presented just to sort of be a devil's advocate. Go ahead. Is- Fallacy and it's no longer a valid argument in the world that we live in. Okay.
0: Thinking about the role of the regulator, we have a new administration. What do you think should be their number one policy priority? Uh, should they be following, say, the role of, of a Britain who's having a hard stop on fossil fuel engines? Should there be following China and saying net zero by date X? Or uh, should it even be something more like a cap and trade or a carbon tax policy regime? Where where do you think the the priority should be?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't really hold myself as a policy expert, but I'll offer a few thoughts. I mean, clearly we need rules one way or another that accelerate our transition away from fossil fuels. We need that urgently. Um, There are a lot of ways to do it. Yeah, we could have a cap and trade or a price on carbon at a macro level in the U.S., that would help. I used to think that was the best way to to go to understand, though, you know, the politics are are very complicated. You know, if you think about, for example, the electricity transition that's underway, the power sector is really great. Right. We've seen this huge transition away. We still have a long way to go. But we did that without a price on carbon. There are a few exceptions we did with a few command and control. These um, portfolio standards that a majority of states in the U.S. have that simply mandate that the power sector stores more and more of its power in a clean way. Those have been really, I say, yeah, they're not as efficient as a price on carbon would have been. That could be true, but they're more politically viable. So we've got to do what's politically viable. Likewise, in wind and solar, tax subsidies, tax incentives really helped a lot. Again, they're more politically viable. They're a little less visible. They don't upset voters, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Also, R&D spending uh, in the U.S., also in places like China, helped a lot. So there are lots of ways for governments to intervene um, to accelerate progress. Now we're in this kind of complicated place in the U.S. right now. It's unfortunate, all this divisiveness and polarization and a split Senate. So what should President Biden or what should the Democrats do or what should the Republicans who favor environmental progress do? It's not crystal clear. Um, we just have to pay close attention. I mean, I think they're on it, and I'm optimistic, but I don't think it's going to be the sweeping regulations that I used to ask for. They're probably not viable right now, and that's probably OK. Ultimately, I think we need um, uh, what industrial policy, like. Uh, Free market people hate to talk about that, but that's kind of what worked for solar and wind. And now if we think about the need to decarbonize big industry, boy, we would really need a super high carbon price to do that. That's probably not viable. I think we're going to need more government intervention. So it's another area where young people could could dig in. We're going to need really good people in the public sector. The last thing I would say is I think the private sector needs to step up more and be an advocate for government policy leadership in this front. I wrote a newsletter about that, too. I think even some of our best corporate leaders on climate have pulled their punches when they're on Capitol Hill lobbying. Um, and I've said that to them, and they kind of admit it. And I think we need to encourage them to make it uh, safer for policymakers who are otherwise reluctant to do the right thing to, to step up. Uh, And there's some reason to be encouraged, like the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable recently came out with better statements about climate than they ever have had before. Now, I could criticize them. I could say, boy, they, they could say they should be saying a lot more. I think that's true. But you have to be a little bit realistic. Those are coalitions of diverse companies, and that's probably the best they could cobble together right now. And it's progress.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I have my final question. Mark, imagine you were to reset your career. You're, you made the right decision, came to Wharton to get your MBA, and you're looking at a sector or maybe even a, a particular company that you want to work for after after graduating. What would that sector or company be? Or are there any other trends that you would want to get ahead of right now? You know,
1: that's, that's a cool question. Uh, I'd answer that uh, less with my environmental hat on when when I graduated from business school it's a long time ago 1984 um, I wasn't really sure what to do um, and what I concluded was I wanted to work somewhere where um, I admired the people and I thought I could learn a lot I wanted to work with honorable people who i admired and where i thought the learning curve would be very very steep so that's what i kept in mind as i did my various interviewing and that's why i went to goldman sachs and i and i was right about those two things i worked with really good people i still admire them they're dear friends Uh, and i learned a lot and then what i did at goldman two things i would say about that it would be harder to do this today but i still think you could do it i i switched jobs more often than most people did and my friends always said I was taking too much risk because you know you give up a lot you switch positions and you lose your former clients and that momentum and it's not without risk but I didn't care I I wanted to keep steepening that learning curve and it was really great because after a few of those career switches like I knew a lot about the firm that most people didn't I had moved around so much then another thing that happened to me early in my career John Whitehead he passed away recently but he was the senior partner he and John Weinberg were the senior partners when I joined Goldman both the seemed giants of Wall Street, really high quality people. Anyway, John Whitehead took me and a few other people aside, you know, he's trying to get to know us. And he said, look, you guys seem like you could be good investment bankers. Guys, I use that generically. It was, you know, men and women. He said, but listen, to be a, a good investment banker, you have to somehow try to be like an important person that that clients will want to get to know. He said, I recommend that you engage in the nonprofit world. And he offered some advice on that. And I thought, I should do that. So I joined at a pretty young age, two very small nonprofit boards. They were small. And then I became the chair of each of those small nonprofit boards. And both of those nonprofits had sort of crises that I had to manage my way through as a chair. And I learned a ton. And I don't think without that experience I would have ever been hired by TNC because the interview was really tough. Like it wasn't obvious they would hire a Wall Street banker to be their CEO. But a big NGO like TNC, in a lot of respects, isn't that different than a small NGO like the two I chaired. Now, why do I mention that? I think it's like back to that game plan. You need to look for ways to broaden out the skill set that you think you'll need to fulfill your own uh, goals and dreams. And that never ends. You just have to keep learning. Oh, another piece of advice I'll give you. It still blows my mind. You know, treat people right. Um, I don't know why, I think I kind of did that. I'm not, I'm not like a saint or anything. I don't want to exaggerate. But I think during my time at Goldman Sachs, I tried very hard to be respectful, friendly, cooperative, and a good person to everyone I worked with. And that might sound like, well, of course, I'll do that too. But in the, in the, in the busy world of business, there's a lot of pressure on it. and Sometimes people forget to do that try not to do that because um, so often in my life, and it just happened to me yesterday. So in connection with one of these engagements I'm pursuing, I think it's really one where I can make a big difference. The CEO was not sure, like, well, should I listen to this guy or not? And we're going to have a more formal engagement. And so he managed to reach out to people in who might have known me long ago and good for me. They said, oh, yes. Mark's a high quality person, a respectful, high quality person. You can be confident working with him. So of course, the reason to treat people right isn't utilitarian. It's just the way you should live, but it, it comes back and rewards you. Um, so try to remember that. Those would be a couple of pieces, pieces of advice. I don't think it matters too much what you do. The world is so dynamic. I don't know how you can even figure out with great confidence, you know what you want to do. But if you go work with high quality people and where the learning curve is steep, and keep that in the back of your mind, and you treat people right every step of the way. I think you can be very confident you'll have a hugely rewarding career.
0: That's great advice, especially in in today's age. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great start to the 2021 Wharton Current season, and we appreciate you being on board.
1: Thanks very much. And listeners, please subscribe to my newsletter, The Instigator, on Substack. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time.